0: From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio. Fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. What should you do with a pistol brace Now that the ATF says they are short-barreled rifles, can you own a gun if you have a doctor's prescription for marijuana? Can you refuse to share your social security number on concealed handgun license applications? We'll answer these and other questions on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Sean Maloney, firearms attorney and co-founder of Second Call Defense. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Dean. So, Sean, it seems like every time I try to call or text you, you're in court. I guess that means you've been pretty busy. Have you had any really interesting cases recently?
1: Well, the the, the federal court system with the ATF changes are is keeping me rather busy. Um, everything from a rare breed trigger and binary trigger bands, the uh, uh, arm brace bands, to even the old bump stock bands uh, still are being litigated and they're still being kicked around. In fact, I had a gentleman, uh, I think last week, show up in my office with a uh, rare breed trigger. And he said he wanted me to keep it for him because he's not sure if it's illegal, if he's going to go to jail or what's going to happen. So uh, th- those things are keeping everybody busy, I think. And of course, New York State Rifle and Pistol versus Bruin, Uh, is making large, wide-sweeping changes with the 1968 Gun Rights Act. So that's keeping everybody pretty busy.
0: Well, on the subject of pistol braces, you know, we've been seeing a lot in the news about that, and I think people are confused. Honestly, Sean, I'm confused by it. Just to remind everybody, back in January of this year, the ATF released what it calls its final rule on pistol-stabilizing devices or pistol-braces and basically said that a gun with a pistol brace is a short-barreled rifle. Therefore, it's governed by the NFA, the National Firearms Act. So it's a machine gun, basically is what they're saying. Under the new rule, any firearm that is designed or redesigned, made or remade, and intended to be fired from the shoulder will be considered a short-barreled rifle. That's a quote from their new rule. So they gave everybody like 120 days, a grace period to apply for a tax stamp. But if you didn't have it by May, you would be subject to felony prosecution. So just like that, Sean, the ATF turned tens of millions of Americans into felons. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I wish I could say I completely understood, the law and what's happening with that right now. But there's a, there's a lot of things that we have to consider. Number one, uh, there there are millions upon millions of these ARs with arm braces out there. And if you look at it, just a small fraction of people have done anything. Uh, you know, on, you had five choices, basically. You could turn the entire firearm into the ATF. You could destroy the firearm. You convert the short barrel rifle into a, a long barrel rifle, which I did on one of mine. Uh, you could apply to register the weapon under the NFA, and they're going to give you a free tax stamp, which hardly anybody has done. Uh, We could permanently dispose of it, destroy it. Uh, And then the most popular thing with America seems to be a choice that the ATF didn't give us. And that's to do nothing, Uh, because essentially people have done nothing. Uh, And there's there's some problems with enforcing that. Also, there's no registration. There's no real clue as to who has. Uh, AR with an arm brace. When you purchase an AR pistol, it's a a pistol. There's no notation of an arm brace. So that's not there either. So they'd have to go door to door uh, to enforce that. And then as to who can still have one and, and who can't, there's been three cases that are in the federal district courts. And in those three cases, injunctions have been issued which the court says, you know, you plaintiffs, you guys don't have to make any changes. It's going to be too much of a burden. Unfortunately, Dean, what they've done is uh, Gun Owners of America, for example, were one of the groups that uh, have that injunction. So if you're a member of GOA, your arm brace is fine and you don't have to do anything. And if you're a member of these other places, you can do the same thing. Well, I have a hard time uh, understanding how – I, if I'm a member of GOA, can legally still have my arm brace, and you, if you're not, you can't have yours. That doesn't seem to be very equal protection under law, and there seems to be a lot of other problems with that. And then another important distinction is when a court grants uh, an injunction like this, uh, one of the things that has to be considered and really one of their overriding concerns is, is there has to be a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits by the plaintiffs to grant that. So essentially when they grant that type of motion, that's kind of telegraphing their hand that that's the way the decision is going to go. And all these, uh, the, the arm braces uh, are going to stand. They're going to, they're going to allow to be there. Uh, And so that's why I feel good about it too. But again, it's confusing. And, uh, and certainly there's a reason to be concerned, uh, I've heard cases where, where, where ATF or other reasons, uh, rare breed trigger, for example, have them going door to door. So if you're at a range and you have a uh, an arm brace on, and you're not a member of these this class subject to the injunction, you know you're a felon. And it's interesting how the ATF, when their own authority, when they don't have any lawmaking authority, can make millions and millions and millions of Americans felons. Well, yeah, you were you were saying that a lot of people weren't really complying with this. What I've read
0: is that there are something like ten to forty million of these pistol braces. There's no way to know, you know, for sure, mm-hmm. because there's no clearinghouse, you know, to collect that kind of information. But ten to t- ten to forty million pistol braces in private ownership in the United States, and I've read that estimates are that compliance is around two and a half percent. In other words. non-compliance. Now, I don't know what the government can do about that, like you said, unless they go door to door, and I don't think they're going to do that. But just on a philosophical level, Sean, don't you think that rules like that kind of create disrespect for the law because they don't know who has them, they can't enforce it, unless it just sort of accidentally comes up in a case? And I think it makes people just want to disobey the law.
1: Well, I agree with you 100%. If you remember back when Buckeye Firearms was supporting Colorado in 2013 uh, with their recall efforts on the senators who passed the the uh, the, the magazine capacity ban. Well, th- th- I still have people coming to Ohio that are buying, you know, quote, unquote, large capacity magazines and going back home because they're saying, you know what? They can't enforce it. They don't enforce it. So you're right. It uh, It breeds contempt, for, number one, and uh, and it's laughable and uh, you're encouraging people to break the law. And then when if there is a law passed that really counts, uh, it's going to be met with the same resistance for whatever reason. So I agree with you 100 percent. Now, there was a House coalition
0: in the United States House of Representatives, and they voted to nullify the pistol brace rule. So, you know, for like five minutes, we were thinking, well, you know, this might go someplace but then the U.S. Senate voted along party lines and they rejected the resolution. So as of now, as far as I know, the rule stands. Sean, do you have any clients with pistol braces and what are you telling them to do? I mean, if you can share that.
1: I have quite a few clients uh, with pistol braces. And like I said, I had my own pistol braces and not knowing where anything was going to go. And if I wanted a short bear rifle, I would have bought one. and I had particular reasons for having an AR pistol, and so do everybody that has that with, an, with a pistol brace on them. My primary reason is, you know, it's covered with my concealed handgun permit or permitless carry in the state of Ohio because it's a pistol. Uh, what I'm adv- advising them uh, is to stand pat and do nothing. If it's easy, which it generally is, uh, remove the, to be safe, just remove the pistol brace, you know, from the firearm. Again, keep it separate. I'm not advising anybody to destroy that uh certainly at this point in time but to keep it separate and uh as always uh, there's been a certain amount of material turned into me for safekeeping uh i'm not sure how safe that is but uh, but i i tell people that you know despite all the problems enforcing that law you never know somehow you could be that one person that's in a situation where oops there's a ar-15 pistol with a pistol brace and you're not a member of any of the protected classes so you're a felon so uh don't advise them to destroy anything, but keep it separate and apart. Because if they're not together, uh, then the then the law, in my view, doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't demand respect in that sense. It certainly, is not going to get you in trouble and is unenforceable.
0: Well, this is part of the the uncertainty about this because what I read, and I know a lot of people are giving the same advice, just you know, kind of take them apart and you're fine. Mm-hmm. But the ATF said specifically that if you possess the gun and the and the brace simultaneously, they have a term for that constructive possession. They're saying that legally that's the same thing as having the brace. So I have a brace, you know, I give it to my cousin, and my cousin tells the, the ATF agent, hey, I'm just holding this until, you know, Dean wants it back. According to the ATF, I'm not protected. So... I mean how how does that work out cuz there there's different legal advice out there. the ATF saying one thing and attorneys are saying something else. It's hard to know what to do.
1: Well, and I guess that's how what attorneys are for and how attorneys litigate their cases, but certainly I think I can successfully argue that when it's separated, you know, it doesn't apply because it's nothing more than a than a stick or an extension. that, that and, and if it's not on the firearm, it's not intended for me to be a AR pistol with an arm brace because it's not on there. So certainly it can be argued both ways. The safest thing to do uh, it is to uh, remove it and destroy it. But the problem is, again, you have these three different court cases saying simultaneously the same things and that uh, things are protected. You're allowed to have them uh, but again, there, there's the ATF rule. And the whole issue is, does the ATF have the authority to issue that rule? And well, if they don't, and that's what's being litigated, then you just destroyed property and there's not going to be a line to get your money back. So now you had said,
0: you had given these different scenarios that the ATF said, you know, here's how you can come into a compliance. Mm-hmm. And one of those was to register, but they wanted you to register before May 31st. Well, that's come and gone can you still register? I mean, what, what do you do if you have a, a pistol brace right now and you didn't register it before, but you've changed your mind?
1: Well, you know, that, that's a good question. Uh, you could, before you actually registered it, you could start the application form and not go through with it yet. But if you haven't done that, I think you're stuck uh, because if, if you all of a sudden uh, try to register that, then you're admitting to the atf that you have one and you're breaking the law in my view so you're kind of between a hard a rock and a hard place and if you haven't done that and i can look into it to get more information but if you haven't done that by the date certain and you're not on the list i think that's a problem you know if the atf wants people to comply uh they'll give them the benefit of the doubt and make it an sbr but i mean that, that you're in a tricky situation
0: yeah. And, and we're not trying to tell people what they should or shouldn't do. This is the kind of thing where, you know, if you have doubts, I mean, for goodness sake, contact a lawyer. Don't don't just kind of sit there and make up your own mind about it or get information from the internet because we all know how reliable that is. But we're all hoping this is going to work itself out in the courts. What What is your prediction, Sean? There are all these multiple cases you're seeming to say that you think it's going to go our way and there's going to be I mean, what's it gonna what's it gonna do? Is it gonna gonna go to the Supreme Court?
1: Uh in my view, uh the, the federal courts that have these cases are going to side with you and I against the ATF. Like I said earlier, in order to grant an injunction of this type, there has to be a reasonable likelihood in a court's view that the plaintiffs, uh the people with the pistol braces are gonna succeed based on everything else that's that's around there. Uh the other rulings that the courts have made related to firearms in my view uh the atf is going to lose and i think uh uh the way certain other opinions have came out in the past few months that the the atf has been or or the courts have been setting the atf up for this loss because uh the chevron deference is what they're basing their authority on a case a, a epa case dealing with chevron oil said the uh uh, the administrative agency has the ability to make minor tweaks in the regulations or minor rule changes because that's what they do every day without having to go to Congress. Well, about a month ago now, another, another EPA case based on Chevron came out with really the uh, the facts identical to uh, the arm brace case, except it didn't say arm brace. It said something else. And they rule it against the EPA. And in my view, that uh, that set the stage for the courts, the district courts, to rule against the ATF in this matter. So there's a lot of different things that I've been looking at that gives me an indication uh, and and a pretty strong indication that the ATF is going to lose this one. Well, we'll just keep watching to see what happens. And uh, we hope that this,
0: you know, turns out well. I just wish the ATF would stop thinking that they are a lawmaking body and stop, you know, just, just enforce the law and not try to make the law. I want to talk about something else that at least in my mind is related and that deals with marijuana in the state of Ohio. And the reason that I think it's related is number one this has to do with the ATF as well and it's also about, you know, this discrepancy between federal law and, and local law and you know how we deal with that on the state level. Sean, uh, I know that you remember that House Bill 523 passed way back in 2016. It legalized medical marijuana in Ohio. And the way it works is you go to a doctor. The doctor basically gives you a prescription. You have to have a medical marijuana card. And you purchase marijuana from an Ohio dispensary. Unfortunately, guns and marijuana don't mix. So while the state has medical marijuana as legal, the federal law continues to list marijuana as a Schedule One controlled substance. So that means... Marijuana users cannot even possess guns legally. In 2011, the ATF sent a letter to gun dealers to clarify the the marijuana situation, and they said in this letter, there are no exceptions in federal law for marijuana purportedly, that's the word they used, used for medical purposes, even if such use is sanctioned by state law. The letter also said any person who uses or is addicted to marijuana, is prohibited by federal law from possessing firearms or ammunition. So apparently, if you're a user, even if you have a, a medical marijuana card in the state of Ohio and you're otherwise legal, you can't even have a single round of 22 caliber in your possession and have marijuana at the same time. You're, you're violating federal law. So, so what do you think about that, Sean?
1: Well, Dean, I, I kind of knew you were going to ask this question. So, uh, yesterday I reached out to Hunter Biden to ask him what I should do, but I haven't heard back. Well, <laughs> so I'll update things we do. He is the he is the authority a, on on uh, the illegal possession of firearms. Yes, and uh, addressing that question, uh, it's it's pretty distinguishable. It is considered a class, uh, a Schedule One drug. Uh, by the federal government they've never changed that their mind on that although i thought they would have by now just given the fact of all the different states throughout the united states that have legalized medical marijuana and recreational marijuana in fact on the form 4473 this question was added i think a few years ago 21g and it says, Are you an unlaw- unlawful user or addicted to marijuana or any depressant, stimulant, narcotic drug, or any other controlled substance? And it, and it goes on and it says, Whether it's been legalized or decriminalized, uh, medical pot cards don't matter. You can't possess or purchase guns. Well, a couple of things with that. If you have a medical marijuana card, that doesn't necessarily, in my view, mean that you're using it. And the question states, Are you an unlawful user or addicted to? marijuana or antidepressant stimulant narcotic kind of drug. Well, I may have a medical marijuana card, but if I've never used it, I can truthfully say and not perjure myself, no, I'm not uh, an unlawful user of marijuana at that point in time. And then I point out that uh, unfortunately, uh, with these laws in place, the federal law and the federal court system says, "Hey, you can't have it. You can't have the gun. You can't possess them. You can't purchase them." Again, that's going to require now the federal government to come in and and, and uh, handle those things. But you, unfortunately, right now, HIPAA keeps the list of people who have medical marijuana cards uh, uh, confidential. But I don't know when that's going to change, or if there's going to be a list, and that and that could be a problem. Uh, it certainly it's you can't really trust our federal government. Uh, as much as you'd like to think you can anymore. So essentially, uh, if you're a medical marijuana card holder and you're a user, you're a prohibited person. Uh, there's no way around it, really. Uh, again, what I said about I'm not currently using it or haven't, I mean, that's a defense that I would that I would push in court case when someone was arrested. But if you're a medical marijuana card holder, you're a marijuana user, you're a you're a prohibited person, and not only can't you purchase a firearm, but like you said, Dean, you can't even possess them. And uh, and actually, depending upon who you get arrested by, uh, even a traffic stop with a smell of marijuana and marijuana around you and a firearm in the car, you know that can end up being a lot of trouble.
0: Yeah, but and, it, you know, every everything smells like marijuana. Right. I mean, I'm really I, I went went through, through uh, a citizens police academy, and they had samples. And we were supposed to, you know, smell them to to see if, you know, we could smell the marijuana. Well, I, I learned, because I've never smoked marijuana, apparently there's all different kinds and it can smell like anything. I mean, they're all different smells and I, that's used by police. I, I'm a big, you know, police supporter, but, mm-hmm. you know, look, you know, you roll down the window and they could claim that they they smelled it, whether it's there or not, it's, it's a great avenue for just, you know, searching your, searching your car. And, um, you know, I, I kind of wish that they would just legalize it to, to remove that because that's sort of their foot in the door to search your car or search your person or whatever just to say, well, I smelled marijuana.
1: Right, and that's exactly it. Uh, and, again, you know, you don't have to necessarily be seizing people's firearms to be pushing gun control or to be anti-gun, and certainly this piece of legislation uh, is is a perfect example of not so direct uh, gun control. And unfortunately, that's the way the law is. Uh, if they, it's like a d- typical DUI observation. He had red blood sh- bloodshot eyes. That's always said by every officer because that's one of the indices of a uh, of, of of a DUI. It's the same thing. Well, I smelt marijuana. And so search the car, find a firearm, uh, have the admission or uh the knowledge that the person was smoking marijuana, then depending upon who they are and the relationship they have with the ATF or the federal courts, you know, who knows what they can do. But again, this is something that's very confusing because my doctor is prescribing me marijuana for a medical condition, and uh I was prescribed Vicodin, I was prescribed other other uh other class drugs that I could legally uh, ingest and possess and still have a firearm. So it's a, it's kind of, it's a little different. Sean, I was uh,
0: reviewing some articles that we had on the website about this topic, marijuana. And I was reminded of what the reason is, or the reason that the ATF is giving for their their stance on this. Apparently the federal government does not recognize marijuana as a medicine. The FDA has determined that marijuana has a high potential for abuse, has no currently accepted medical use and treatment in the United States, and lacks a level of safety for use under medical supervision. So I guess that makes a certain amount of sense from the ATF's point of view. They're saying, look, the FDA has not approved it, therefore there's no reason for us to approve it. So not only would you have to work on the ATF to change their ruling, you'd have to get the FD, FDA to say that marijuana is a medicine. And I, and I know that seems shocking because all over the United
1: States, marijuana is being used in that way. By licensed uh, physicians, right. which even makes it harder. Wait a minute, I my doctor says that I need this. And just because the FDA isn't approving it uh, doesn't really... Uh, tip my hand one way or another because I got a doctor that's there to save my life and, and make me more comfortable, which tells me that, you know, the, we could take it out of the hands of the ATF, take it out of the hands of the F- FDA, and have Congress pass a law and do the right thing. I mean, either it has medicinal purposes or it doesn't. uh From what I've read, uh, apparently it does. And I, you know, I've read that in, in several journals, certainly, that, you uh, that would be good evidence in court. So again, that's, that's a, uh, that's a fine line that you don't know what side to walk on and you're not sure what the right answer is. But uh, certainly if you are filling out a 4473 and you have a medical marijuana card and you're smoking dope or you're, excuse me, you're smoking medicinal marijuana and uh, you don't want to perjure yourself on that form, then you need to go away. Cause as soon as you mark the truth that yes, I am, you're done. The, the application doesn't even get submitted to next. How does that play out in a legal
0: case though? Because can, I mean, can you literally be prosecuted for something that Ohio has made illegal?
1: Yes. So, well, if, if you decide to, uh, answer the question that no, you're not an unlawful user, even though the state of Ohio says that you can have this and provides you with the drug. If you say no, it's perjury. Uh, and, there's, and at the same time, on the Form 4473, there's a certain amount of perjury that's allowed. For example, if you get the record sealed or expunged a, a conviction and it asks you if you've ever been convicted of a felony, even though you have been, if it's sealed or expunged, you can legally answer no. You can legally lie, so to speak. Uh, but then in this case, uh, on 21G, if, you, if you're an unlawful user and you admit you're an unlawful user, uh you're turned away but if you but if you uh answer the question true to what the state of ohio believes and answer no you're not an unlawful user because you know what under the state of ohio and in my house i'm using it legally and if you use that and answer the question no i'm not then uh certainly you're going to get your firearm but down the road if that can be proven uh then you're going to be held for perjury but i think during the entire Obama administration, there was only two people ever prosecuted for improperly filling out a, a Form 4473. You had thousands upon thousands of denials based on the fact that someone says they haven't been convicted of a crime, they run a NICS check and you're a felon. When we've had these discussions in the past, sometimes people didn't even realize that they were prohibited persons. Uh, and other times people just fill it out, not knowing that they're prohibited. So Uh, I don't know who made the choice upon the hundreds of thousands of denials not to prosecute anyone. So, again, that's another law that we have that kind of creates dissent uh, within the people and makes them not want to follow the law and and lose respect for the ATF. Well, I mean, just forget guns for a minute. The the federal
0: government says marijuana is illegal. Ohio says marijuana is legal. So
1: how does that play out? Well, I guess— it's legal until the federal government gets involved. And that's why, you know, when, when you, when you wanna pass laws that say that we won't use Ohio money and Ohio resources to enforce federal laws, this is one of the perfect examples. The state of Ohio has determined that it has medicinal purposes, that it's legal medically, and we have the right to say that. So, but then all of a sudden you have the ATF or a drug task force coming in, ran by the federal government, going after uh medical marijuana or medical water users and then all of a sudden you, you know you have a distinction wait a minute we're not spending ohio money on federal prosecution but but that's what it is when i'm in my home not in public and in, in my home i'm i'm a, a a citizen and a resident of the state of ohio and i'm abiding by ohio laws
0: well that's that's just crazy that kind of makes my head explode mm-hmm. Sean, that something can be legal and illegal simultaneously
1: exactly and and, and when things like this occur it's it's up to our government to correct the problem, uh, and we and we shouldn't have to lobby and we shouldn't have to to bang drums. There's enough attorneys in the in Congress that uh, there, although there seems to be a lack of common sense when something like this arises, uh, that's exactly what the court systems are to correct. Wait a minute, you, we we can't abide by the law if we don't understand the law.
0: Well, I just don't think anybody, and I don't want to belabor this topic any further. But, I just don't think anybody's really going to fix this problem. I mean, Republicans don't want to fix it. And I don't think the Democrats really want to fix it. there There's been talk about um an initiative petition, you know, to get this on the ballot and make it make marijuana legal in Ohio for recreation. But that doesn't solve the problem either. No. So, so the same you know, problem, yeah, you
1: just you And know. I think when um, When you have problems like this, then you got to look at the fact that imagine all the probable cause arrests that are no longer going to take place if you legalize marijuana. Um, Imagine all the money that you're going to lose when you can't arrest somebody and ticket them for marijuana. I feel bad for the people that are serving life sentences for three strikes and you're out for possession of marijuana. And there's who knows how many people have been in prison for things like that. So, again, uh, when you're looking at, at that, things are really indistinguishable. Uh, you know wh- what are we going to do about that? And certainly now it bleeds into to, to our ability and uh, and our firearms ownership, right? And whether we are a uh, a prohibited person or not. Well, Sean, I want to
0: turn to a different topic and ask you about this, since you're an attorney and and we're talking to you here on the podcast. You know that we brought permitless carry to Ohio last year, so now you can carry a concealed firearm without a license. However the license still exists. I just renewed mine in March. I wanted it for reciprocity. That's a big reason people still have their license, and there there are some other reasons. On the application or the renewal, it asks for a Social Security number, but it indicates right there on the form that it's optional. Now, we found out that in Fairfield County, the sheriff's office has been demanding not only the Social Security number, but a social security card, a physical card, and they were refusing to process applications without one. Now, Sean, I just want to walk through this because this is an ongoing situation. Why does the application ask for a social security number?
1: A social security number is a distinguishing uh, factor for someone's identity. We can both be named Sean Maloney, We can both live in the same general vicinity. So if we're gonna run a background check or a NICS check, then you're gonna have two Sean Maloney's that it could potentially be. But if you use the social security number as an indicator or an identifier, There's only one Sean Maloney with that number, with that social security number. And so then they can quickly and accurately determine that you're a prohibited person or you're not a prohibited person. So that's the reason why on the Form 4473 uh, that you need to fill out to purchase a firearm, there's a spot there for a social security number, but it says optional. So it's not required to accurately run a uh, background check on somebody that it helps for speedy uh, speediness, e- expediency, so to speak, and also it gives a little bit more confidence that you got the right Sean Maloney. Uh, so uh, it's on the form, your concealed handgun license form in Ohio, it says optional. You, it's the same way on the Attorney General of Ohio's webpage in their form, it's optional. It's optional in the Ohio Revised Code dealing with firearms in the application process.
0: So the number is optional, but can and so someone can literally just refuse the the, the sheriff's office to ask for it. And you can say, no, I just I don't want to give you that.
1: That's correct, because somewhere in the federal law someplace, it states that the Social Security number could be used for one purpose and one purpose only. And that's dealing with Social Security benefits, uh, because early on, they're all asking for a Social Security number and you didn't have to give it. And basically, you still don't have to give it. In, in most situations, and I can't think of a situation where you're required to. What about demanding a Social Security card?
0: If I mean, if the number is optional, sheriffs can't make up their own rules and demand a card. I mean, I would imagine a lot of people don't even have a Social Security card anymore or don't know where it is.
1: I got mine when I was seven or eight years old, and I haven't found it for probably you know, 58 years or so. Uh, And I haven't needed, I know the number. And you're absolutely right. It's not, it doesn't prove identity. Uh, So you saying using a memorized social security number and a social security card, it really is a distinction without a difference. And again, it doesn't prove identity by itself, so I don't know how it can be required, other than the fact that the sheriff will argue, well, it's up to us to to properly do a background check and, and issue the permit, and we want a Social Security card to make sure we know the true identity of the person for the same reasons I mentioned, expediency and to make sure I have the right Sean Maloney immediately. But again, it's not required, and it's not even required by the federal government for their next check. Again, it's optional. I always provide it because uh, it makes it easier. Uh, I used to get delayed all the time. I started giving my social security number, and and for the past 20 years, you know, I've had no problems. So we've talked to the Fairfield
0: Sheriff's Office, and we talked to the county prosecutor about this, and we're told that they're aware of the issue and that they're revising their procedures. But you know, this is still up in the air. We're going to have to kind of follow up to see what happens and and see what they change. I would encourage anyone listening to this, if you've had a problem with this, the sheriff's office demanding the number or demanding the card, contact us, let us know, because, you know, we're trying to work this out. It's not like we want to get into lawsuits or anything. But, uh, you know, sometimes sheriffs uh, will, will go a little too far, just like a, a lot of other government entities or government officials. But the sheriff is elected. The answer to you so we just want to make sure that they're following the rules. Sean, what would you advise if a client came to you with a problem like this and says, "Look, I just don't feel comfortable, you know, giving them a number or showing them a card, but I still want to apply for a license."
1: Well, they have a couple of different options and it depends upon if you're going to make be making a principal or just want to get your permit. I simply go to another county uh, that doesn't require a physical social security card and isn't going to demand it. Or uh, you can uh, stand your ground and file a lawsuit and take it from there. Okay, Sean.
0: So uh, let's let's turn uh, to a different topic again here. It's officially summer now and people are traveling. In fact, I've got a trip coming up. I'm going to Gettysburg in Pennsylvania pretty soon. So I'm going to be crossing into other states and I will be traveling with a firearm What advice do you have for me as I travel in my car, stop at rest stops, stop at gas stations? Do I need to do anything different in other states? How do do I handle traveling with a firearm?
1: Well, the first thing you can do is you can uh, make sure that you know the laws uh, for reciprocity of every state you're going to be traveling through. Uh, You have a, a number of different options. There's provisions of the federal law known as the Firearms Protection Act. Uh, that will protect you even in the states that you can't legally have a firearm. If you're passing through the state and you're not stopping for any amount of time at a hotel, then you can simply have the firearm in the trunk uh, in the ammunition in a separate container. And then you can legally transport that firearm through the state to the state that you can legally have a firearm in. Uh, understand your reciprocity rights. handgunlaw.us. Take a look at it. Uh, and I know there's several links on Buckeye Farms Association that you can look, and you can see the laws and the reciprocity laws in Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania, so I happen to know that we have reciprocity, and and I am also aware of the fact that uh, you have to be cognizant of the fact that the law that controls you is the law of the state that you're in. Don't be confused that Ohio laws are following your Ohio license because it isn't. As soon as you pass across a state line into another state, you're then abiding by their laws of concealed carry and transporting a firearm. So make sure you know uh, whether you have a duty to inform. Make sure you know where the firearm has to be, if it's any place uh, different. Uh, make sure you know about all the little differences in the law. And that information is is widely available now. Uh, so I always I always tell people to map out your course before you get in the car so you're not surprised. And then also you want to be aware of the fact that if there's a strange detour or something happens or a dean, as you so often do, you get lost and you wander into another state. You want to make sure, you know, in that other state how much trouble you're in. Uh, I, uh, I think I think, I think you you're story. talking about you, Sean. I, I yeah, never, I, get, I, lost, right. never I get lost. Never, ever get lost. I've often told the story of traveling in Virginia to an NRA uh, meeting and taking the wrong turn and end up in Washington, DC, you know, with my firearm on on my hip, you know, and then coming out of Washington, DC and wiping the sweat off my brow, even only to find out that I'm now in Maryland. So you you wanna make sure you know the laws that, that you may bumble into and what to do and don't panic and make sure you just get out of those states as quickly as possible. But it's important to know about the Firearms Owners Protection Act it allows you safe passage, but remember, it allows you safe passage for the state. It doesn't allow you to stop and stay overnight or to stop at your brother's house and stay for a couple of days. So, and that was instituted in 1986. But again, would I defend my, uh, or would I plan on escaping uh, all problems in the state of New York State under FOPA? Nope, would not at all. I wouldn't put it past the New York State police, especially in uh, New York City, to, to to throw me in jail and not, a, not abide by FOPA and make me fight. In fact, the, those cases have happened before uh, in in the past. you got to remember, you're transporting. You're not staying for any length of time. It's unloaded, the ammunition in the firearm. In the case of McDonald versus Arnold, the courts upheld a conviction based on the interpretation that an accused had a loaded firearm despite not having a around in the chamber. If you remember Ohio's old life, had a magazine that was enough. So you, the the ammunition or the magazine needs to be kept separate in a different container. Now that can be a, 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 a an outside compartment on your gun case, but it cannot be with the firearm, and it can't be not readily not readily accessible. Now there's no court or clear court decisions on what readily accessible means. But the best thing to do is if you have a trunk, it should be in the trunk and the ammunition should be in a different bag or compartment in the trunk. If you're in a sport ute or you're in a minivan and you don't have a trunk, then you want the gun to be in a lock container and the ammunition kept separate someplace else.
0: So uh, dealing with permitless carry in Ohio, we don't have to have a license with us when we're traveling in the state, but I'm going to need to have my my actual physical card with me in some other states. Not all right. of them will demand that, but some of them will. I mean, for me, I just think it's safer. If I'm going on a trip, just take the license because that way I'm going to avoid any hassles, right?
1: And Dean, you're so right. And I uh, i was coming home from seeing mom two weeks ago, and guess what happened uh, south of Cleveland? I got pulled over. I don't know why they are there. There's a surprise. Me. Yeah. So I got pulled over, hands on the steering wheel, windows are down, pulled off the side of the road. Officer approached me on the right hand side of the car. First words out of my mouth, even though I don't have to do it as officer. I'm a concealed carry holder and my firearm is on the right side of my body. Do you have any construct instructions? No. Could I see your driver's license? Shut up my fire li- driver's license. We'll slow it down and have a good day. And and I'm telling you that for the most part, uh Used to be people didn't want to get caught with a gun and a concealed carry permit when we first got permit or permit carry. Now it's a comforting factor, I believe, for the police when they know they have a a law abiding citizen with that. But you're right. You could be in a state that also has permitless carry. West Virginia, your home state, for example, you don't need your permit there. But if you're going to go and carry with reciprocity in Pennsylvania, you've got to have that permit. And don't forget. If you ever end up on in school property in the state of Ohio, the only way to prove that you're a qualified individual is to have a concealed carry permit, even if you're just leaving the gun in the car and going into school. You can't be at, uh, within 300 feet of a school without uh, being a qualified per, uh, individual. And the only way you can prove you're qualified is an up-to-date concealed carry permit.
0: Well, Sean, we've been talking about traveling with your concealed carry license. Uh, Something else I think it's a good idea for people to travel with is a membership in Second Call Defense. Now, last time you were here, we talked about how you're the co founder of Second Call Defense and you guys help protect people if they get caught up in a legal issue after defending themselves with a gun. Can you just remind everybody what Second Call Defense is?
1: Sure. Second Call Defense is a membership program that protects anybody who uses any weapon in self defense. Uh, If they're forced to use lethal force, they should call nine one one to summon help, and the next call should be the second call defense, where there'll be an attorney on on the phone twenty four hours a day that will immediately uh, get you an attorney contact. That in most cases immediately get you an attorney. Will provide bail if you're arrested. Contact your your uh, your your relatives uh, to make sure they know what's going on and provide you ongoing protection. Everything from retainer fee to bond. Uh, to ongoing uh, uh, money for your attorney, psychological counseling, uh, and any other number of things, cleanup of your home, for example. And the reason why I always say uh, that it's important to have services like that is that we know and we're a little bit more comfortable in our hometowns it, caring because we know the police or at least know where they are. And we may or may not know an attorney. But if you're across the state lines or you're four or five counties away, you're, you're all uh, on your own. And this Second Call Defense gives you ability, wherever you are in the country, whatever time of day it is, if you ever are forced to use your firearm for self-defense, you have attorney by your side 100% of the time, and you're never alone. So how do you
0: sign up for a membership with Second Call Defense?
1: You can go to our website, it's the easiest way, secondcalldefense.org, and then and then click on plans and pricing, uh, go to the membership application, and choose your membership, fill it out, all easy questions. And then when you get down to an offer code, if you put BFA or Buckeye Farms Association, you'll get your first month's free. It will send you your information packet, your membership card, and a check for the amount of your first month. That way you can try it out free of charge for a month and making the determination uh, of how good the services are and how it makes you feel. We also have a website with a lot of different information dealing with uh, do's and don'ts at concealed carry. Uh, how to properly carry what you should do after an incident, what never to do after an incident. And we also have a, a, a library of videos uh, from the Personal Defense Network uh, that gets into uh, carrying concealed and different activities in self-defense with a firearm. Well, Sean, I appreciate all that. It's always
0: uh, comforting uh, to have all this information from you to help us stay out of trouble. Thanks for spending time with us. If someone wants to contact you about a legal matter, Sean, how do they do that?
1: My cell phone number is 513-484-0142, and that's on 24 hours a day. So if it's an emergency, call me. But if it's a question to deal with, uh, concealed carry, wait until at least 6 o'clock in the morning. Or my office direct is 513-463-0073. And if I don't pick up, leave a message, and I return all my phone calls. Thanks again, Sean. We'll talk to you again soon. Dean, thank you so much for
0: having me. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.